Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday the 28th of September and today we're going to brief you on Julian Assange. You'll find out how he's coping in the face of a 175-year US jail sentence. Yes, he is suicidal and I think the prospect of what it would mean for him and Trump's America to face criminal prosecution for this is not a pretty one. That story in just a moment. First, Jan Fran is here as we get into the big news of the day. Happy Monday, and a particularly happy Monday to Melburnians. The curfew is over. We are ahead of schedule. Uh, We have made more progress than we had hoped to make at this point in time. That's Dan Andrews speaking yesterday as he fast-tracked some of the uh, easing of restrictions. There's a bit more detail, so we'll take you through it. Yeah, the curfew was the big one. That ended this morning. Uh, Groups of five people from two households can now meet outside. Weddings um, are allowed again. They will have to have a maximum of five people. There's no limit on the number of people from one household who can go shopping now. Scarves and plastic face shields, they no longer count as masks uh, and police will start handing out fines for that one in a week. And speaking of fines, those found to be unlawfully gathering will have to pay an increased fine of nearly $5,000. But wait, there is more. Three more weeks and then we can take a significant step. It's not the final step, but it is a significant step and it's a big step back to normal. Yeah, and now those steps will happen not on the dates that were originally set out in the roadmap. They've gotten rid of those. They'll now ease the restrictions as they hit the benchmarks on the case numbers, which is an interesting change in approach. Yeah, the Premier is hopeful that if coronavirus cases remain low, the state will ease restrictions even further around about October 19. This means that outdoor dining will resume and gatherings of up to 10 people will be allowed and so will home visits from one other household of up to five people. But that hasn't happened yet. The numbers have to stay low in order for that to happen in a few weeks' time. Uh, The Deputy Chief Health Officer there, Dr Alan Cheng, is, you know, exercising some caution. We are tracking to about that um, mid to late October, but chance starts to play a very large role in this and um, one large event, one super spreading event, and it could be pushed back. And the other big news out of Victoria over the weekend was the state's health minister, Jenny McCarkos, resigning in quite a dramatic fashion on Saturday. Um, Last week, she told the inquiry into the bungled hotel uh, quarantine scheme that she didn't know who was responsible for the program. I had no reason to be turning my mind to, to, to their whatever role that they were playing. I do not know who made that decision. And then on Friday, the next day after she'd given evidence, the Premier took the stand uh, and he said he also didn't know who actually made the decision to install private security, but he said the health minister was responsible for the overall program. Yeah, then on Saturday, Jenny McCarkos resigned in a pretty blunt statement as well. She said that she could no longer work in his cabinet because she strongly disagreed with his evidence. And she did add that she didn't believe that her actions led to Victoria's second wave. So she wasn't resigning because she made big mistakes that led to deaths in Victoria. She resigned because the Premier contradicted her evidence and, you know, arguably threw her under the bus. And on Friday, it was Job Seeker and today Job Keeper is being split into two tiers and wound back. Yeah, right now around three and a half million workers are receiving the payment. Full-time workers will get $1,200 a fortnight part-time workers and casuals will get $750. Yeah, and still talking money, the Prime Minister's previewing the federal budget, which is just eight days away now. Um, Before the fires and the pandemic, the plan was to be back in the black, and they were even, you know, giving out merchandise to that effect, leaning into the ACDC reference. Um, But today, 
uh, it looks like they're going to be $200 billion in the red. Arguably one of the most important since the Second World War. The country, the world has not seen what we're seeing right now. This budget has been cast to, re- to reflect that. And it's jobs first. Jobs first, second, third. Prime Minister Morrison there. And today he will announce hundreds of millions of dollars to continue supporting domestic airlines and millions of dollars to boost regional tourism. That's the other big one. Staycations. Yeah, all about the jobs there from the Prime Minister. What happened to jobs and growth? Wasn't that a great slogan? Remember that one? Yeah, I think the pandemic happened. (laughs) Right. No more growth, just jobs. And overseas, US President Donald Trump has named his pick to replace renowned feminist Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Today it is my honour to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Now, this is a big deal because these Supreme Court appointments basically are lifetime appointments, and Amy Coney Barrett is only 48, and she will be there for many, many decades making really important decisions about the future of America. Um, She's a Catholic mother of seven. She's anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage, but she says her beliefs don't interfere with her judicial decisions. If confirmed, I would not assume that role for the sake of those in my own circle, and certainly not for my own sake. I would discharge the judicial oath and faithfully and impartially discharge my duties under the United States Constitution. President Trump says that she's on track to replace Ginsburg before the November election. Of course, there will have to be um, a Senate committee hearing where uh, Amy Coney Barrett will be questioned by senators on both sides of the political aisle. However, the Democrats don't have the numbers to vote against her. So it is going to be up to uh, Republicans in this instance. Yeah, and it will be interesting to watch politically because, you know, the Democrats are clearly not happy that Trump is rushing this appointment through. Obama wasn't allowed to do the same thing when he was president. And they will want to challenge her on her religious views, but they're going to have to do it quite carefully if they don't want to put 60 million Catholic voters offside just weeks before the election. Yeah, it's telling how fragile US democracy is that the death of one person can throw so much into disarray in the lead up to an election. All right, in just a moment, we'll give you the latest on Julian Assange. Hundred and seventy-five years in prison. Can you even get your head around that number? That is what Julian Assange could be facing. Yeah, and that's in a US prison too. Yeah, you'd know his name, but the story of the Australian WikiLeaks founder, it's gotten so messy that it can be quite easy to lose track. Yeah, so we're going to find out what's going on for him right now. A court in London has resumed hearings in the extradition case of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The US government is pursuing him on 18 counts for offences ranging from hacking into its databases to publishing classified material. He faces spending the rest of his life behind bars. So, as you can hear, he's facing a grim situation. He's still in London and there's a hearing underway to decide whether or not Assange will be sent to the US or extradited, to face those espionage charges. So how did we get here? 
Let's do a little recap. The White House blasting the release of over 90,000 U.S. military records on the war in Afghanistan. This is the largest leak in military history. In 2010, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks first started making big headlines. What really put him on the map was the release of almost 400,000 classified U.S. documents about the war in Iraq. And this included footage of U.S. soldiers shooting dead 18 civilians from a helicopter. The shocking footage revealed a callous disregard for the lives of Iraqi civilians. But the US president at the time, Barack Obama, saw it differently. He called the leak a threat to US national security. And this was our government's stance at the time. The foundation stone of this WikiLeaks uh, issue is an illegal act. The foundation stone of it is an illegal act. Information was taken and that was illegal. Then later in 2010, he was arrested in London on a Swedish arrest warrant. Yeah, so they wanted to question him over allegations of sexual assault. Now, he fought this, arguing that going to Sweden would allow the US to extradite him from there on secret charges. So instead of going to Sweden to deal with those allegations, Assange sought political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And he stayed there all the way up until last year when a new Ecuadorian president basically booted him out of there. So then in April last year, he was arrested and dragged out of the embassy by British police. That's what you're hearing there. And he was taken to a London jail for breaching bail. And he's been there ever since. It was also around this time that the US government finally revealed there was an indictment for 18 charges with a total sentence of 175 years. Now, to get him to the US to face those charges, they have to extradite him from the UK, and that is the legal proceeding that is happening now. The hearings were delayed by COVID, but they did resume two weeks ago. Jen Robinson is an Australian lawyer in London. She has been with Assange for the last decade and has been working on this case the whole time. She joins us now. We heard last week in the extradition hearing that Julian Assange was suicidal and you've known him for many, many years now. How would you describe his emotional and psychological state? Well, obviously it's been 10 years of being under some form of restriction on his liberty, including being inside the embassy and and worse for the past year and a half in Belmarsh, a high security prison. And the prospect of what he faces is something that I don't think anyone can really properly understand. He's effectively in self-isolation looking at at least the next three years of appeals in the UK and 175 years effective life sentence in the United States for publications for which he's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a pretty depressing picture to be looking at and one in which, as an Australian citizen, he's had little to no help from our own government. And so I think the prospects for him of what his day-to-day life means and what the future holds is a pretty depressing prospect. And that this is happening to an Australian citizen who has, in my view, done such a great service to journalism and to human rights and to the public is a pretty awful thing. So... Yes, he is suicidal and um, I think the prospect of what it would mean for him and Trump's America to face criminal prosecution for this is is not a pretty one. In April, we found out that Assange had a fiancé, Stella Morris, and that he had two children that he fathered while he was in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy in London. Is that being factored into this case in any way? 
Well, of course, the fact he has a family and and the impact that it will have on his family is part of our case. They're such beautiful children and she's been such a huge support for him. I think it's it's a source of joy for him, but also, again, the prospect of what he's looking at and being isolated from them. He didn't get to see them for the past six months during the COVID restrictions with no social visits in prison. It's both a huge source of strength and support, but also a very sad thing for a family to be kept apart in these circumstances. But yes, it is part of our challenge. We've heard some interesting evidence in the extradition hearing so far, um, like the evidence from the psychiatrist that I was talking about before. What's the argument that you're making in this case? What what would it take and, and what hope do you have of getting this UK court to refuse the US extradition order? Well, I mean, there's many complicated arguments that we're making. Um, first, that this is a political case and a political offence that he's being uh, charged with. It's obviously a non-violent offence. He's being charged for having published information, including evidence of war crimes and human rights abuse. So what we're saying is that this is a political offence. He's being charged as part of the Trump administration's war on whistleblowers and journalism. But we also have a a range of other statutory defences, including about the prison conditions that he'll face if and when he's returned to the United States. He'll be placed under special administrative measures, which is described by many groups as the black hole of the US prison system. And in circumstances where he's now been diagnosed with Asperger's and we know that he is nine times more likely than most to commit suicide, his ability to survive those prison conditions and a potential life sentence is a, is a very serious issue. So it's a very complicated case. We're, we're, you know, we've been in court for two and a half weeks. We'll be in court for, for a bit longer. And we've had a lot of evidence both about his psychiatric well-being, but also about prison conditions, about the impact this will have on free speech, not just in the US, but around the world, and why this case is such an abusive process. Yeah, I guess um, there's sort of two key ways that it can go. Either the UK can refuse the US's extradition or it can grant the US extradition of Julian Assange. Can you just talk us through what happens in both of those circumstances? If the UK refuses extradition, what happens to Julian? And if they don't refuse extradition, what happens to Julian? If the decision is to extradite him, then he will be extradited to the United States, placed in effective solitary confinement and face a criminal prosecution, an unprecedented criminal prosecution, which could take another decade to sort out before we get to the US Supreme Court. Um, It's not a future that you would wish upon anyone and certainly not an award-winning journalist. If his extradition is refused, it only protects him from extradition in this country. So he could still face extradition to the United States if he steps outside of this country and even home to Australia. So that's why I think his partner Stella has been calling for Prime Minister Scott Morrison to protect him and his ability to return home to Australia with his family if we are successful in challenging the extradition. But again, you know, he's tied up in these legal processes as a result of the Trump administration in ways that I think it's important that Australians know how dire the situation is. Yeah, how do you want the Australian government to intervene? Because I imagine if he is extradited, it's pretty unrealistic to expect our leaders to try and intervene in a in a US, you know, legal case, but is it mostly if he is an extradited that, that you want the Australian government to intervene? What do you want them to do? If the Australian government was more proactive and spoke out against this case, it wouldn't be happening. And Tom, it's not correct to say that the Australian government couldn't intervene once he was in the United States. I mean, the Australian government intervened to get David Hicks to come home, someone who had been accused of terrorist offences 
This is an Australian who won the Walkley Award for Most Outstanding Contribution for Journalism for the very same publications for which he's now in a high security prison in the UK facing US extradition. So the Australian government absolutely could intervene and at any point And if as an ally of the United States and a friend of the United States that we raise concern on behalf of this Australian citizen, I really don't believe this case would go ahead. So the Australian government could and should intervene. And the fact that they haven't, I think, is a real shame and and speaks volumes about our government's commitment, not only just to its citizens, but to free speech. Do you have any hope that Trump could potentially pardon Assange. Um, We know that right before Obama left office, he pardoned Chelsea Manning, who uh, was the person that leaked Assange the cables back in 2010 and was supposed to be serving a 35-year sentence. Is that an avenue that you and your team are potentially exploring? Well, I gave evidence in these proceedings about a pardon offer from from the Trump administration that was communicated, which was only on the basis that Julian revealed his sources and he refused. So the Obama administration made an active decision not to prosecute this case and commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence and released her from prison. The Trump administration has obviously taken a very different stance. So I have very little hope for what it means in a Trump administration, given the stance that they've taken this 175-year superseding indictment. I think it will require a change of government in the United States. Hopefully, if the election goes differently, that a Democrat president would, like Obama, see the grave danger that this precedent would set for the United States, because it effectively means, as we've heard from expert evidence in the case in the past few weeks, the end of national security journalism and indeed the criminalisation of public interest journalism. So it's that serious. Apart from, I guess, the actions Obama took when he was in power, have you had any other encouraging signals from a would-be Biden administration? Well, no, we haven't got an indication of what that would look like. But at this point, when you've got a Trump administration declaring the press the enemy of the people and seeking to set a precedent through this case against Julian Assange that would criminalise, like I said, all kinds of national security journalism and indeed public interest journalism, it is a real worry and one would hope that a Democrat administration would, would take a different approach. Jen, can you give us a bit of a timeline now of, I I guess, um, the extradition hearing and and where you see it going? Just a a picture of what the next few years look like for your team and for Assange. Well, look, we are in the midst, in the middle of the extradition hearing and the evidential stage of this hearing. So we're unlikely to get a judgment until later this year at the initial stages. And there will most likely, depending on the outcome, of course, be an appeal process that could go all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. And there's a real question about whether Julian will have to remain in prison at that time. So I had to go see him in the cells down at the Old Bailey. And it's and it's sad to me that an Australian citizen who is a Nobel Peace Prize nominated journalist and editor, that I have to go through the security rigmarole and visit him in a cell. And that could be the next three years of his life while we challenge this, um, let alone what might happen if he's returned to the United States. So the future isn't a particularly fun one. Yeah, is there any chance that they would... Um release him and he could, you know, live outside of prison while that appeals process took place? That's an open question and remains to be seen, but obviously he's been refused bail so far. And the only reason he's being held in prison is because of this Trump administration indictment. And I think Australians ought to be very concerned about what that means for democracy. All right, Jen Robinson, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for hosting me. 
And tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to take you to Tasmania, where we've seen the worst mass whale stranding in recent history. We'll find out what's been done to save those hundreds of whales. A Podcast One production.